This is a conversation with Ryan Graves. Ryan is the CTO of Humblebee Bio, a New Zealand-based startup developing novel biomaterials to replace plastics. Previously, he co-founded and managed operations for a drug discovery startup for multiple sclerosis and had worked in various labs in pharma and academia in both New Zealand and the UK. Ryan has a PhD in neuroscience with foundations in molecular biology. In this conversation, we cover Humblebee Bio's polymer and how it derives its unusual properties from a solitary Australian bee. They go to market strategy and we contrast the drop-in and performance materials. And Ryan talks about using plants versus microbes as biofactories. I'm Tung Shu and this is Materially Better. This podcast is a series of conversations about new performance materials and their applications. For the first time in generations, I believe that new materials will play a big role in unlocking innovation and solving pressing problems. And now here's Ryan Graves. What is Humblebee Bio and what is your role as CTO there? Uh, Humblebee Bio is a, a biotech company based in New Zealand. Um, and we are developing novel biomaterials uh, to improve planetary health. Um, and by planetary health, you know, that's got a direct impact on human health. Um, so both those things are really core to our mission. Uh, the company was inspired uh, largely by the problem of plastic pollutions, plastic pollution, plastic pollution, but also sort of um, forever chemical pollution as well. Um, so that was that was kind of the problem that the founder, uh, the founder of Veronica Stevenson, um, she, you know, she had sort of wrestled with this problem for a long time um, and she decided to just go hunting for a solution. And the solution that she found came in a kind of an interesting um, place and it was inspired by a solitary bee. Um, and the solitary bee you know, doesn't live in a hive, it lives by itself and it, and it makes a nest and it lines this nesting with a, this nest with a, a nesting material that it that it implants its larvae and and the larvae kind of grows in this beautiful nesting material and then eats its way out and we have a new new bee for the whole world um but when she pulled this nesting material out uh and sent it all to some chemistry labs um they were pretty stunned by its properties um and so the idea came about well how can we create what nature's already designed and how, how can we kind of recreate that and a laboratory setting and then scale that to an industrial setting um, and actually start pushing out products that will be a solution to the to the current plastics uh, problem that we have right now um and so my role as, as cto within the company um is to drive the r&d program um to to take what is um a very challenging place to start with and try and develop stuff that's going to be uh, superior performance to petrochemical based plastics um, and then also to try and scale that so that we can actually get a uh, commercially viable um, business proposition um, that we can compete on cost of goods and um, and the like. Yeah, I really want to dig into more, of course, a lot more about Humblebee Bio. Um, and um, one thing you didn't mention during that intro, which I have to shout out, is that it's an Australian uh, must be, right? So just wanted to just wanted to give that shout out for for Australia and uh, you know, making yeah. quite a unique species of bee. What led to your interest in synthetic biology and biomanufacturing? Um, I was I got really, really excited about uh, molecular biology way back when I was an undergraduate. And I still remember the lecturer, uh, the lecture um, that, you know, kind of sparked all of this interest. Um, 
And I had a professor, Professor Warren Tate, who was the one who just, and he just uh, really lit the fire in our imaginations of what you could do with these different tools. Um, most of this was orientated towards using genetic um, tools to make monoclonal antibodies and other uh, biotherapeutics um, for, you know, for, for the biopharmaceutical world. Um, and then, you know, I used these tools throughout my career in various different ways in the lab and and the, and the rest of it. But then when I got to know Veronica Stevenson and and, uh, and Humble Bee um, Bio came onto my radar, um, I was quite blown away by what was happening in synthetic biology. That suddenly these same tools that we used sort of 20 years ago, and even before that, um, had suddenly become kind of industrialized. Um, and so we were able to just synthesize DNA at such an affordable cost, much longer gene fragments, um, sequence very high DNA, um, and 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 push push this all into a biomanufacturing um, setting. So, you know, huge uh, fermenters and make tons of uh, different materials. Um, and, you know, and it, it seemed like it was always... Um, science fiction 20 years ago and and then suddenly you've got companies that are actually doing it um, that they're actually producing tons of these materials um, some are even doing it at a profit now um, and so suddenly the whole world opens up and of, of possibilities um, so I guess that was uh, that's where my interest came from this and um, and I've always just I've just loved how nature can design genetic elements um, and push those out manufacture them into proteins and then the proteins become these functional entities that make things go around you know um, and so how can we translate that and, and shift our, our manufacturing to the advancements of what a, a cell's been doing for billions of years yeah i mean that's that's great and you know, it must be really good to you know sort of see that and uh, you know as a practitioner as a, as an operator in the industry for for decades in a sense and 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 at least be be close to that for decades and being able to see that trajectory and you know 20 years is not a long time right um in in, in historically speaking and so to, to see that level of progress must be pretty pretty amazing um in your experiences too uh, across many sectors i mean what do you think helps uh, and and from what you've learned has actually helped you to to be more effective in what you're doing now at humble b um, there's quite a, f I guess there's quite a few things. I mean, the the, the scientific understanding is is the fundamentals. Um, understanding the you know genetic elements, the how cells operate, the different chassis that are available to engineer um, structural biology and how these proteins you know fold and do all the thing, and then 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 how you can kind of uh, turn those into biomaterials and biofabricate. Um, you know, these everything we do is pinned into those fundamentals uh, science, really. Um, that's the core of it. I think there's a bunch of things that have happened around this that, that have made things possible, especially, you know, forming a company here in New Zealand uh, at a, you know, in a, essentially a corner of the world. Um, the, the globalization of the world has certainly helped. Um, even things like, um, you know, the COVID pandemic are just in some ways brought the world much closer together um jumping on zoom calls um and uh, and contracting um companies on the other side of the world became really really easy um you know we've formed a partnership with ginkgo bioworks um last year and um, and you know and those interactions were were so easy and seamless to get that 
deal up and running and to work with that that uh, that team um, that I don't think that would have been possible you know even 10 years ago I mean it was definitely possible but you had to get on a plane right um, and mm-hmm. and uh, and and get on a plane often and uh, that just costs time and money um, that small companies don't usually have so the globalization certainly helped um, and yeah, even sourcing talent and advice yeah, we've got a, a sets of advisory groups that are all around the world and you know the only the only barrier is usually is their time and time zones um and mm-hmm. what questions we ask them but again we can get access to all of these amazing advisors that are keen to help um and uh, things like the technology that we're speaking on right now has certainly enabled that um mm-hmm. uh, those those are probably the the main things um uh, humblebee operates as a virtual company and so we we contract out all our work to um, to labs around the world that are that can do this. So in some ways, we can go and access the best the best talent around the world and their labs and their setups without having to build them um, and without having to draw the talent here or, or grow it up within our own company. Um, and so they all become part of our kind of our company in some ways. Um, and so we we love the model. It's got its challenges, but. But it's um it's it's certainly a really fast way to do very difficult things and to scale quite rapidly. Yeah, that's a really fascinating aspect of what you've told me previously about Humblebee and is just that distributed model, which you know I've come across in the context of Cloud Labs, um, which is obviously somewhat different. Um, but and just you know uh, having worked in semi-distributed teams before myself. What was the thinking for your, for Humblebee with starting with distributed teams? And you already touched on the benefits, but yeah, curious how you think about some of those those trade offs. Yeah, I mean, uh, largely it was the model came because we were so capital constrained. Um, raising capital is is difficult. It's difficult for the sector. Um, uh, it's certainly difficult in, a, in, in New Zealand who are, you know, a little bit more conservative around this deep tech um, science and, and you know, long, long R&D cycles to before you get to market. Um, mm-hmm. So we, you know, we operated on hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so when you do that, you just don't have the capital to build out a lab or to recruit people uh, with the right expertise and you know, and drag them to New Zealand. Um, nice place and all, but uh, mm-hmm. it's still expensive to do that. Um, and so it, it more just came out of um, uh, out, out of need more than than want, and it's worked incredibly well. Um, we're certainly not the first company to do this. Um, I know certainly in the drug discovery world, um, uh, but virtual biotech companies have have operated for you know a couple of decades using the similar model. Um, but yeah, with with a few hundred thousand dollars, um, we managed to, like I say, access talent around the world, access their labs, um, get them to do the things that they were super super good at doing, almost exploit their niches in a way, and um, and they were always excited to work on a very challenging project like what we had. Um, so that that was kind of the main driver. Um, but then when we sat back and looked at the model, it's it's got a lot of um, positives about it, particularly the speed that we can move at with um, with established labs. Um, mm-hmm. they already have the instrumentation they have the setups they um, they they have the expertise to execute what they're very good at um, and so you can plug a problem to them and and they can they can do it very fast so we don't need to kind of upskill our own team internally to do that that type of work um, mm-hmm. so yeah that's that's been the the main benef- benefit of this 
Um, and we have teams in, in, in Melbourne uh, at Deakin University. We have teams in, in Queensland and Brisbane um, in Auckland uh, and here in New Zealand. Um, and uh, we've accessed uh, teams in San Francisco and, and as I mentioned before, Ginkgo Bioworks um, in, in Boston. So, yeah, that's that's been uh, incredible for a company like ours just to rapidly scale um, uh, and build essentially build a team up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And uh, obviously it seems like a very uh, uh, asset-light and, and, and capital-light approach to, to, you know, to, to scale in the early days, as, as you've said. Um, I wanted to back up a little bit just to talk a bit about what led you to join in the early days when you talked about Veronica and, and, and her founding. But yeah, what, what led you to join initially? Um. It was more just to think around the the excitement around what could be done. Um, <clears throat> I shared a similar kind of passion for the problem. Um, I'm, you know, I've got a, a strong passion for both um, human health, but also planetary health. Um, you know, sort of as a kid, I was always kind of trying to clean up the environment and jump into nature and all that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, the, the, and you know, now I've got sort of young kids and stuff as well. You can certainly see the problems that are coming for planet earth um, and how that is going to really affect both our biodiversity um, and also our human health. And, you know, so it was quite easy to jump on board on, in terms of a, a, a mission. Um, and then the second part of all is just, I guess, the excitement uh, and possibilities to really build out a technology and uh, and a company. Um, so yeah, it was quite a quite an easy decision to kind of join um, and, and and join in with the excitement of what's happening with synthetic biology. Um, you know, there, there's there's probably a lot to be said around timing as well. Um, I think ten years ago, this was a very would have been a very difficult proposition to 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 get excitement around it. But I think when you glance at some of the other companies and see what they're doing, um, a lot were mentioned in your brilliant article. Uh, Thank you. You see what Solugen's doing and Lanzatech and uh, Checkerspot, um, and Bolt Threads, Amsilk, uh, and you, you 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 know you kind of want to you want to be a part of that that journey that trajectory of these explosive um technologies that are going to seriously change how how the planet um is and how humans can interact um whilst you know whilst not severely changing how we generally live um and you know and that was a probably a a thread that veronica and i both shared you know this this thread of of you know, everybody kind of knows that a lot of the stuff we do is not good for the world. Um, we all buy plastics, we all buy clothes that are that are detrimental to the environment. We all know it. Um, and uh, but but it's at the end of the day, it's actually it's not really a consumer's fault because we walk into mm-hmm. shops, we need stuff, and mm-hmm. there's there is no options. Like you walk into a clothing shop, there is no there is no environmentally friendly options. Cotton has huge issues, even though it's mm-hmm. a natural. A natural and textile um and then you've got all your synthetic polymers so it's not like uh, it's not like we're making bad choices there's actually very limited choice um we have to drive in cars um it's mm-hmm. um you know all these things that, that kind of help our society uh, continue on its trajectory um i'm all for that but um what I, what we want to offer is is that consumers can can walk into um into shops and that sort of thing and actually be able to select things based on what their values are. Uh, so we really want to create things and give them that option. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And, and I think, yeah, you know, progress is, is really, really good in so many ways. And, and I think you really frame it well, right? Like just there is limited choice and, you know, how can you give them more choice for better products that they will actually want to buy um, that also happen to be sustainable by default. Right. Um, And so maybe we can jump a bit more into Humblebee Bio uh, and the material specifically. Um, what, What is the, uh, the 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 B polymer that you already touched on briefly, but what what is that that you're developing? Can you can you talk a bit more about it? Yeah, sure. Um, the uh, the 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 natural wild nest material um, had some ex- has some extraordinary properties that really blew us away, um, blew away the chemists that were working on it. Um, some of these properties is that it's um, it's uh, you know it's it's got flame retardancy properties. Uh, it, you know, um, which is quite remarkable for a natural compound. Um, it's resistant to solvents such as toluene, uh, resistant to acids and bases. Um, one molar HCl, uh, you know, doesn't degrade it, which is quite phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea kind of sparked on the back of that was uh, we can, this is a malleable um, material that can be put through industrial processes um, and we can shape it how we want and push it into products and uh, so that's kind of where it started um, the challenges kind of started straight after that though <laughs> um, so you know and, and then the idea was how do we do this can we use a chemistry route and that was attempted and actually we found it was too difficult um, and so we switched over to using a synthetic biology route um, and that's kind of when I came on board the company. Um, we sequenced the genome of the bee. We identified the gene uh, that codes for this nesting material. Um, and now we've sought to recreate that. Um, so we've pushed that gene into various different chassis, um, such as E. coli and Pickepsstorus. Um, and we express the protein, um, purify it. Um, and then we've got a team of biomaterial scientists that take that pure protein um, push it into various different formats um, and then create biomaterials from that protein. Um, so it's essentially mm-hmm. a pure protein that gets pushed into films, fibers, mm-hmm. coatings, um, and then we test those for the for its various properties to, you know, with the ultimate goal to actually make a bunch of uh, proof of concept um, biomaterials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about these um, material properties before. I Just on those, you mentioned flame retardancy, you mentioned um, acid um, uh, resistance to, to dissolving acid and bases. I mean, I'm curious if just how you think about like, is that the combination of those that makes this somewhat unique? Are there, are there specific things that it just simply does better than most polymers out there? I'm curious how you think about the performance comparison versus what you, it would be competing against in the market? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, the, what it's competing against in the market is actually it's a, it's pretty wide at this stage. And, you know, it's kind of in some ways, plastics are an incredible um, material. They're mm-hmm. so incredibly versatile and hence why we use them in everyday life. Um, the the main issue is just with their degradation properties. They they just they degrade to a certain extent, and then they sit around in our environment for you know up to five hundred years and mm-hmm. and plus, which is obviously going to cause so many problems from um, from an environmental point of view. Um, I think I um, I think I read recently that there's 
um, that the mass of all plastics on the surface of the earth now outweighs the mass of all the mammals on, on earth. Um, it's just extraordinary. Mm. Um, and it sort of pushes towards this dystopian sort of um, future view of, uh, of where, where planet earth is going. And mm. probably the scariest part of all that is most of that has been produced in the last 20 years. Mm. Um, so you only got to push forward into sort of when our kids are growing up and uh, grandkids come along, what the world's going to look like. It's going to be, you know, essentially covered in microplastics and, uh, and other pollutants. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the, the main driver and the main um, concern around the current versatility of the plastics we use um, today. Um, but going back to what the nesting material does, um, we, we've done a bit of work in trying to understand what the bee is looking for in its nesting material and why it has evolved uh, towards this nesting material. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially the bee, Australian bee, uh, in Queensland, is, you know, it's exposed to a, a number of different uh, environmental um, pressures, um, quite extreme pressures, you know. It needs to keep its larvae moist to a certain extent, uh, and it's going to be in some pretty arid conditions. Um, and so, you know, how does it form a material that can both have breathability, but also keep um, keep some moisture inside? But also when it does rain and, you know, the seasons that you have in Queensland, it's uh, it's either raining pretty hard or it's really dry. Uh, how, how does it keep the water out too? Um, and and then obviously you've got the issue with bushfires and hence potentially the, the flame retardancy properties. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, this bee's been evolving for, you know, when we look back at the the, um, the phylogeny, it's, you know, it's got a million years of evolution uh, to mm-hmm. develop these different types of nesting materials. Um, and it's developed um, a, a material that can do all of these things. Um, and so it's very much about, well, how can we recreate that in the lab? Because that's an extraordinary set of properties to have in a single material. And probably just- the key thing... The key thing in terms mm-hmm. of us wanting to advance this is its biodegradation properties. Um, and to, to be completely fair, we don't fully understand how this biodegrades. Um, but all, all we know is, is that it doesn't because we can't, it's very hard to find this nesting material environment, despite there being a decent population of bees around who are making this every, you know, make it uh, twice a year when they lay their, their larvae. Um, mm-hmm. It's So it degrades in some manner. Um, otherwise, it would be really easy to find. Um, so we do believe it biodegrades, but that's um, that's a piece of work that we have to do at some point to fully characterize that and understand what its biodegradation properties are. Um, but I think that's probably the most exciting part of this this mm-hmm. material we can create. Yep, yeah, for sure for the for the end of life um, and 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 the environmental benefits of that. To what extent are you using the um, the properties from the uh, from the bees nest um, the nesting material as a baseline? Um, as something that you could go beyond, and to what extent are you looking at that as sort of like the, the goal in terms of the the the, the properties you're you're trying to hit? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, so yeah, ideally we're using the nesting material as guidance. Um, it's actually really difficult to recreate the nesting material exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and we've certainly looked into that, and it's you know there's. Uh, although we've had all these advances in synthetic biology, we're still so limited. Um, mm-hmm. These these um, these insects are just remarkable in terms of what they can do um, from both, you know, their genetic code to moving to protein to moving to making a, a nesting material. 
they can they can combine certain different uh, combinations together. They've got machinery within their glands that you know are far more advanced than the most advanced microfluidics that we have today accessible today. And they can combine this all in a perfect sequence to produce something that's um, that's quite incredible. Um, and so we can only recreate parts of that at the moment, uh, just with the technologies that we have. And so we are very much using the nesting material as a guidance set um, of what we think is possible and then trying to remake that and see what we can come up with. Um, so that's that's the principal thing of what we're trying to do with the proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Yep. Once we've made that, then we're going to go back to the, the synthetic biology principles where you have this um, design, design, build, test, learn cycle, um, where we can start making random, random and systematic changes to the genetic code. And it, this is just the beauty of it; it's entirely possible with the budgets that we have these days that we can do that. Um, and then we can see what the different properties um, of those changes can can make. And so from that very nature with the, again, like I say, like the design, build, test, learn cycle, the learn part is actually, you know, can can we start tuning the properties to this? Um, mm-hmm. And so if we really, really want something that's hydrophobic, can, can we alter a whole lot of the underlying chemistry and drive it to being something that is super hydrophobic? Um, mm-hmm. uh, we think it's possible, um, but we obviously need to try and do that. Um, so yeah, a bit of both, sort of guidance and inspiration from a nesting material, but then kind of actually using the tools and the robotics that we that the world now has and the bioinformatics and machine learning tools um, and actually see whether we can do this on a uh, using those tools as well yeah no it's fascinating and to- touches on you know what you talked about before about how things just wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago um, in a sense to, to to do some of these things or certainly certainly at this speed um, and and to this extent perhaps in terms of some of the genetic edits. Um, can you walk through the high-level processes um, for making the biopolymer and, and making that proof of concept today? Yeah, I can walk through some of it. Some of it's mm-hmm. proprietary, but um, I'll see what I, how I can navigate this. Um, sure. Yes, I mean, it, it, essentially, um, essentially, it's it's we're using precision precision fermentation. Um, so it is very much about engineering a cell. Um, and the cell being, you know, most one of the most advanced machines we have on planet Earth, um, and we feed it a different a code, a genetic code, um, and so this is fairly standard molecular biology in some ways. Um, and then we use precision fermentation to to scale that up into scales of grams and then kilograms, um, and and from that we can purify the the protein, um, which uh, has actually been extremely tricky with this particular protein, um, but we we've certainly uh, we've you know, had to experiment with that and figure out novel ways to do that. Um, and then once we get that pure protein, the, the biomaterial scientists have a number of tricks up their sleeve, both using different um, green chemistry, so different sort of green solvents, um, and and then a bunch of different uh, physical techniques uh, to make biomaterials. Um, some of these techniques are wet spinning, um, electrospinning, mm-hmm. Um, and then just casting films and different coating techniques um, to 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 see what what um, biomaterials they can create. Yeah, just a couple of follow-ups there. So, in terms of the um, materials that you uh, are targeting to make and to fabricate from the from the proteins, uh, do you can you give a sense of what sort of 
um, first uh, first target materials that that you have in mind, and then just the the additional piece there is um, how do you how's the degree of difficulty in comparison with uh, with both the upstream piece of it, the the, the synthetic <laughs> biology piece of of the process versus the downstream uh, fabrication piece once you've got the purified protein. Yes, no, that sounds. I can definitely answer that. Remind me what the first question was again. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Just um, <laughs> uh, in terms of what the first uh, material uh, is that you're looking to fabricate yeah. from the purified protein. Yeah. So um, we we have a our beachhead market will be in, is into textiles um, and textile finishings, um, and this has largely been. To, driven by the the market need or the market pull um our company gets approached kind of on a you know every second week by some big brand uh looking for solutions um for their textiles um and some of these textiles are within cars some of them are clothing um and various other different iterations of that um so we definitely get a sense that there's a, a big market need out there um a lot of the forever chemicals um and and other um uh and other um petrochemical based uh, compounds are, are starting to be regulated out um so regulation is kind of a driver but also consumer uh, a lot of this has been consumer pushed as well so yeah we see we see a, a big market need in textiles um and that's what, probably one of our primary markets yeah got it mm -hmm. and then your following question was was that largely around scaling how do we manage to scale this would it be coatings that you're looking at first or just generally it could be textiles and or textile coatings? Yeah, largely um, textile finishings. So mm -hmm. a, a type of coating, I guess. Um, and again, this is some of it's driven by market need. Um, mm -hmm. Things like your DWRs, which are your durable water repellents. Mm -hmm. um, they use of polyfluorinated compounds that are being regulated out uh, so again there's, there's quite a strong market uh, pull uh, for for um, high performance but sustainable uh, biomaterials to replace those um, and that kind of almost fits with some of the other challenges that we see kind of going forward with scaling um, so initially when we scale our cost of goods are going to be relatively high um, so things like finishings is is using a much lower volume of our biomaterial um, so hence why the two things kind of click together and fit um, mm -hmm. fiber is a bit more challenging just because it consumes a lot more raw material um, mm -hmm. and the raw material until we scale to a very large amount will will struggle to compete um, cost you know by cost of goods with polyester or the other different fibers that are out there mm -hmm. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. And I just wanted to to clarify that because, um, yeah, the, the, the second piece uh, to that question previously was just around, um, so take finishings then um, as your end product. Is the, is it just, uh, is it a higher degree of difficulty to synthesize the protein uh, and biomanufacture the protein? Or is it, is it kind of like the actual, there's more, challenge in actually uh fabricating the the finishing i think it's i think that the challenge the challenge for us to date has certainly been in the in the front end about how we we work with this gene um and express mm -hmm. the protein and produce the protein that has certainly been our challenges to date um mm -hmm. but my feeling is is that will hopefully be more straightforward um 
but yeah, there's certainly been a lot of challenges and and like I say, isolating the gene, expressing this gene uh, and and purifying it out. Um, and you know, and I think a lot of that has to do with just the fact that this is so incredibly novel. Uh, mm-hmm. No one's really worked on a protein like this before, mm-hmm. so it's just had all its challenges. Um, yeah, the the mm-hmm. biofabrication is um, it's certainly going to have its have its challenges, but we don't see them being incredibly insurmountable. Um, probably the bigger challenge that we foresee is how we're going to scale uh, and you know do. You know, I think the whole industry is kind of concerned about this. How how do you really scale biomanufacturing uh, with the current infrastructure around that we have and and the cost of goods um, challenges mm-hmm. that we have? Yeah, how do you how do you think about that today? Then scaling um, in in the future once yeah, we have proof of concept. Yeah, yeah. So uh, proof of concept comes first, and scaling mm-hmm. and cost of goods is going to be a secondary concern. We certainly don't want to be distracted by that at the moment. We've kind of got enough technical challenges uh, to 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 drive through at the moment. Um, this the scaling was interesting, and you know we both attended that Built with Biology conference, a brilliant mm-hmm. conference in Oakland earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was certainly so much chatter around that conference around how we scale. Um, precision fermentation is is the obvious way to go with this. Um, and then literally scaling to, you know, the more you scale, the more your cost of goods come down. Um, mm-hmm. This is certainly how the petrochemical industry works, you know, through... Um, you know, we, we we compare and contrast against what it costs for polyester per kilogram. And it's, you know, we all kind of go, well, how on earth do we compete with that? Um, mm. But then when you break it down, you know, this, the, that industry has had operates on an enormous scale and hence they get the, they, they get the, the, um, the economies of scale in that very, by that very nature. They've also had government subsidies for the last sort of, you know, uh, what 60 80 plus years that have helped build that in- infrastructure so um, when we as a new industry are sort of looking to try and compete uh, cost of goods wise it's uh it's on a very unbalanced grounding um and so we certainly are seeing some things in the industry that are trying to rebalance that um you know, with um, the Biden administration putting out, um, you know, wanting to inject two billion into the bioeconomy is, is certainly a, a really good seed to see uh, this sort of uh, hopefully going to germinate in many ways. Um, but yeah, we mm-hmm. see that as a, as a big problem. Um, the other thing that has kind of very much surprised me and, and very much excites me is around the alternatives to precision fermentation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, can we scale using algae? Can we? Can we scale using photo, photosynthetic um, organisms, um, uh, cyanobacteria, mm-hmm. uh, microalgae? Um, and this is certainly a lot of technology was was developed through the biofuels era that we saw. Um, mm-hmm. And then even pushing on from that, can we scale using plants? Um, and again, you know, the, some model organism plants have have certainly gained traction in recent years. Um, technically, it's it's more complex, but the scaling story is uh, is so much more um, exciting, uh, you know, to 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 grow fields or greenhouses or vertical um, farming of of plants that are producing uh, a very high value protein is um, is an incredible story, um, and so you know we're really keen to attempt that at some point um, and sort of run the cost of goods numbers to see what we can do in terms of a. Um, a process around that 
Um, and, you know, and we're, we're starting to talk to people who, you know, who do life cycle analyses and sort of compare and contrast the two different modes. Um, fermentation has still got its challenges around not just cost, but also carbon. Um, you know, we really want to be a, a, mm -hmm. a carbon absorbing industry. Um, and so there's, there's work to be done within fermentation to make sure that we essentially capture carbon, push it into the biomaterials we make it, send those out into society and essentially capture carbon from atmosphere and push it into our everyday goods. Um, and hopefully some of those goods stick around in our houses and in our cars for 20, 30 plus years. Um, and so it's almost a carbon capture, a useful carbon capture. Mm -hmm. um, place. Um, is fermentation the best way of doing that or, or is photosynthesis a better way of doing that? And I think um, most people would lean towards saying photosynthesis would be. So can we grow biomass and extract, um, you know, 15% of that as being our protein of interest and then use that biomass for other um, other sectors of the economy um, and build that into our life cycle analyses? Um, so, yeah, that's some of the more exciting stuff that we have planned to come next year, which I think... Mm -hmm. Uh, that certainly excites me because um, we do see the challenges of, of fermentation and building cities of stainless steel. Yeah, sure. In terms of those those bioreactors and 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 plants, I mean, uh, specifically biomanufacturing plants, not plants to as as chassis, as you said. Um, how I mean, I've had a couple of conversations, brief conversations about this recently. I mean, how do you think about the limitations, at least today, in terms of using plants as chassis and plants as the enabling uh mass to actually grow these proteins are there are there just limits to how complex the molecules are that they can make yeah look i'm i'm not a plant molecular biologist expert by any stretch um, mm -hmm. i've always worked in mammalian and bacteria um but when we've been looking into this i mean the, the challenges with plants is that plants are incredibly complex from a genetic point of view their mm -hmm. their genomes are three times larger than 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 mammals are um which comes with all sorts of challenges about how do we insert the gene of interest into these and get these plants to express them um and uh, and you know and the techniques are coming on now um you can push them into the chloroplasts and get the chloroplast uh, which uh, for those um, out there that um um the chloroplast is the part of the um uh the plant that that makes that is green that will give us the plant it's it's green color um, but it's mm -hmm. almost a separate little engine that has its separate little um genome uh that um uh that may is a, is a place where we can insert a gene much more easily than where we can insert it in the genome of the entire plant um so mm -hmm. i've heard that the and read that the um that the chloroplast engineering is, is a way to go um we're seeing this with tobacco um the first biopharmaceuticals are being um, produced in, in tobacco now. Um, the first one was approved earlier this year by the FDA. Um, so we, and I think it's a vaccine actually. So we can produce a, a, a vaccine compound in tobacco and extract that. Um, and, and that's now going into humans, which is an incredible story. Um, whereas yeah, well, previous to that, everything's been made in, the, in, in vats and in, in bacteria or, um, or other uh, different fermentation um avenues um so so yeah the plant technology is coming along um the the other challenge there's a couple of other challenges that i foresee one is around just the genetic engineering story um 
society i don't think we still we have yet a, a full social license to use genetic engineering um and so the genetic engineering in, in most places still has to be in a very contained environment um and obviously with plants that limits it so it mm. would have to be contained um greenhouses and in, in large parts of the world and some other parts of the world are definitely um more progressive about this technology and have enabled a genetic um modified food uh, genetically modified um, plants to be out in fields um, and grown um, so there's I guess society, societal limitations on this as well um, and probably the last part is is the bioprocessing so the downstream bioprocessing um, extracting proteins out of um, bacteria particularly if they've been secreted and a fermentation um, system is is very very well studied mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of engineering that's gone into this over the you know the last few decades um mm -hmm. and the downstream processing costs are usually about you know sort of 40 or 50 percent sometimes even higher than the actual fermentation costs so mm -hmm. that really needs to be an important part in the cost of goods model um plants uh, it's likely to be even higher um mm -hmm. So there's certainly challenges around that um, to to make sure that the downstream processing of extraction is um, is going to be um, fast and and cheap. Um, so yeah, I, those are kind of the three main um, issues I see. Just the technical of getting the plants to actually express it the right way we want. Um, the issues around genetic modification and and, and organisms and society, and then the downstream processing. Yep, no, that makes a ton of sense. Um... And, and yeah, it's a really fascinating take. Some people say that compared with drop-ins, uh, differentiated performance uh, in a material will accelerate demand uh, for, for biomaterials. W what do you think about that? That's a really interesting question and a really strategic question for all companies who are in the space right now. Um, there's... I think there's examples of both, and I think the industry is going to be doing both, particularly at the outset. Um, the drop-ins just enable much faster speed to market, uh, which can get revenue streams up much earlier. Um, and there's a lot of examples around these drop-ins. You know, Lanzatech and Solugen are the two main examples. Lanzatech are making ethanol and ethylene and um and other things that are you know mm -hmm. plugging straight into the existing infrastructure now um you, you look at amsilk and they've got silk proteins that are going into skincare um, products and those skincare products uh it's essentially replacing out a petrochemical based um product the ones that give that silky feel uh then there's now a a, a biological silk in there um, which has got much better degradation pro properties um so mm -hmm. the droppings are, are definitely um part of the mixture um ultimately though i think the high value comes from uh making bio better higher performance uh, materials than what is currently out there in the industry and it's i think it's at that stage where we can actually start um, pushing up the uh, the value proposition for us as a company um, but they're they're they require a lot more um, engineering to get to that point um, a lot more R&D um, and also you know the manufacturing getting them up into manufacturing and stuff will take longer if Humblebee Bio is you know wildly successful what have you achieved and what are the products and services that you will make uh, and what do they look like in 15 years yeah, so I mean, our, our little solitary bee has certainly given us a really, really interesting um, 
protein to start working off and we want to almost see that as a as its own little mini platform of which we're hoping to make a, a number of different products and a number of different applications mm-hmm. um so that's that's kind of the the first um the first part of our pipeline i guess um the second thing is is that you know we're going to we're starting to kind of look out for other examples of um of societal need or market problems um, and then look in nature to find solutions um, very much about how we did it the first time round. Um, the first time round is always really tough um, mm-hmm. so you know we, we want to capture that knowledge and those processes and start repeating it for a second third fourth fifth sixth um, uh, different um, little product um, platforms mm-hmm. um, so it is very much looking uh, for the societal problems and then using the skills that we have looking at insects looking at fungi um, for the solutions that we that we desire um, going in um, into the sequencing the genomes extracting the genes recreating those um, materials and then seeing if they and then product test and developing proof of concept um, products and making them um, but yeah I think the world's uh, the world's hugely in need of these new products um, I don't think we will be short of, of demand um, it's more just about what can be limited by imaginations um, in terms of what we can uh, what we can take from nature and learn and um, I think someone phrased the term sort of co-design with nature um, and I think it's a wonderful phrase and a, and a wonderful mm-hmm. um, way of thinking about how we can develop novel materials for the world. Yeah, I really like that. And Max Montz, who had been on the show uh, just very recently, uh, said as well um, that, yeah, there's this co-development process, right, with nature, um, which is basically what you're speaking to here as well. Um, Yeah, super fascinating just to see all the different startups. And and Humblebee obviously has, you know, you've started off with a different platform, if you will, a platform or a different starting point. And so it'll be fascinating to see how, yeah, your learnings, your... um, and 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 how that informs sort of the direction that you you decide to take there. How would you like help, um, and who would you like to hear from? Um, yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, again, sort of at the Built with Biology conference, you know, it was it's, it's such a collaborative industry right now. Um, and I hope that continues. Um, I think we all see the problems and challenges of a, of uh, you know both that we've talked about during this during this podcast um, that we're all sort of binding together and really helping each other out, um, which are, which is just amazing. Um, and I hope that I really hope that continues. The the things that I think we as a company uh, are going to need help in the future with is is largely around scaling. Um, and uh, not just scaling in fermentation, uh, it's actually probably exploring the idea of can we scale in plants, can we scale in algae, um, can we scale in cyanobacteria, um, what other chassis are out there to scale with. Um, I think that's probably one of the, the core issues we have. Um, and then probably the other one is about, you know, how do we build these um, these big variant libraries and actually really drive the design, build, test, learn cycles. Um, you know, we've we've certainly are developing that talent in the house to a certain extent, um, but particularly with the, you know, the bioinformatics and um and machine learning and um and really building out that stack if you if you mm-hmm. like. Um, mm-hmm. Those are that's a that's another um, big one where 
Um, there's other companies that are way more advanced at doing this, and we certainly want to learn from how they're doing that and, and how that can benefit um, the, the future, really, in terms of uh, producing high-performance um, uh, biomaterials. And that's great. And it's also really good to see you doing that in New Zealand. Um, obviously, Lanzatex, um, uh, you know, has a strong presence out there too, but that's really great to see. Um, anything else we should have covered and any parting words for listeners? Um, probably the only other thing to say is more just around um, around talent. Um, I think there's certainly a, a, a lot of very well-trained molecular biologists bioengineers, um, biomaterial scientists um, who are in the industry right now getting excited. Um, a lot are coming out of academia and into biotech companies as they grow and, and you know, the people want to really make impact. Um, and I think that's really, really exciting. Um, but again, mm-hmm. when you sort of project forward and, and, and a lot of people have kind of done this, um, um, Eric Schmidt and, and his, um, his group have certainly pushed forward about how, you know, projecting the future about how large this industry is going to grow and, and actually w- mm-hmm. what do we see as the bottlenecks and uh, developing talent is going to be one of the huge ones. So, you know, mm-hmm. sort of reaching out to anybody on this podcast who's, you know, at, at, at university level or even at school level or even, you know, at, um, at uh, who's, you know, who's 10 years old at this stage, um, you know, the, the industry is going to and it's going to be bright. So um, get into STEM, um, get into learning about biology, get into learning about engineering, um, machine learning, bioinformatics. Um, there's certainly the future is definitely going to be bright for those types of people and the industry and and the industry certainly needs it society certainly needs that talent to come through um we need we're going to need just you know huge numbers of uh of um of future talent to run these biomanufacturing plants and keep co-designing with nature and keep improving what we're doing love it uh great message for those up and coming engineers and and builders looking to make an impact in synthetic biology and and biomaterials um final thing is how can listeners connect with you ryan yeah um i'm i'm personally active and so is our company humble bee bio um we're active on on twitter um and on linkedin uh those are probably the two best avenues um we've got a, a a beautiful website as well so um and it's got a contact page for that so um nz. um uh, that's another avenue um yeah, um, we're always open ears and uh, keen to connect with uh, any of the listeners out there, and um, particularly with other companies uh, that are that are building um, or talent who want to build with us. Fantastic! I'll link to all of those in the episode description. Ryan, this has been a lot of fun, um, and yeah, look forward to the next time we we speak. But uh, for now, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the pod, and yeah, uh, I'm excited to see the progress with the proof of concept. Yeah, it's been an absolute privilege to be able to speak with you. Um, I'm certainly a huge admirer and supporter of the work that you do. Um, so yeah, keep up the great work of uh, of disseminating the cool ideas within this industry and and driving the excitement up. It's um it's awesome. You you do great work too. So yeah, thank you for inviting us on this uh, on this podcast. I appreciate that a ton. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks so much for listening. Materially Better is a new podcast, and I am a first time podcaster. So if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you left a rating on the Spotify or Apple podcast app, 
or a like and comment on YouTube. Also, following the show and sharing this episode with a friend really helps as well. So thanks again and see you on the next one.